You're listening to Earnestly Speaking, the only weekly podcast that covers friends, foes, and anything that goes. And now, for your badass host, Ernest Owens. And we're back with another episode of Earnestly Speaking with your host, Ernest Owens, myself. <laughs> Whew. This was a week, like... A week filled with so much madness and also so much marvelousness. <laughs> I am like on two various clouds. I'm on a cloud of, whoa, did that really just happen? And I'm also on a cloud of like, oh, cloud nine. I can't, I can't put it into words. It's just been a really exciting weekend and um, you all have seen it. So mm, this weekend was my anniversary weekend, celebrating two years of marriage. Um, Last weekend was my birthday for my 32nd birthday. So it's cool that everything kind of goes in two. So I got married like four days after I turned 30. So the good thing is is that the wedding anniversary will be on par with whatever milestone anniversary I have post 30. So I'll have 10 years of marriage when I'm 40, 20 when I'm 50. Like it'll go in this cute sequence. Which is, I don't think I planned it that way. I think I had a, in my head, I had a goal in my mind that I would be, I would be married around by 30. Like I had a personal goal um, that I was able to hit, which was pretty good. Four days, give or take. But it was, it was a goal for whatever reason. I think for, I don't know when I started saying that out loud. I think it was around, I think when I graduated from Penn, I was like, I was telling everybody around me, like when I'm when I met him, I knew he was the one. You know, I knew Mr. Johnson was the one. And I was I was very much like in my head, like, okay, well, you know, he graduates a couple years after I do, but by the time everything is straightened out, we should be married by by 30. By then we should, you know, he's younger than me, but for me, I was like by 30. So we it was about seven, seven, eight years. Yeah, because we got together in 2014. The wedding was in 2021 so that was that was that was seven years yeah so that would that that worked out quite well with our with our timeline um but no it was it was mm, it was <sighs> it was such a lovely wedding i look at the picture sometimes like when did this happen like it just feels like it was i, I can't even put it into words but it was like wow this this really happened like we really was able to pull this together, family and friends and outfits. And, and I, I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, like, where did the money come from? <laughs> you know? And I'm like, remember, I just remember the pandemic was just, we were, we were working a lot because of a lot of opportunities based on what was going on in the world for better, or for worse. And so he was doing virtual bartending courses while still working. And I was finishing grad school. I was writing a book. I was, just getting all this this extra opportunity to do speaking events and so all this additional revenue that we had that we made during that time it was just like we were putting it towards the wedding like we were working and playing the wedding during the entire like crazy half of the pandemic like from we got the i got engaged christmas eve of 2019 20 january 2020 we had established a venue uh where we were going to have it which was Penn museum and then we just spent all of, you know, we didn't even know 20, I mean, no one knew 2020 was going to happen, but like we spent that entire year 
I mean, we couldn't go on vacation or anything because we couldn't leave. So all of the the money we would have typically spent going out to eat, going, um, you know, going to some spot where there was a staycation. No, we didn't really do any of that. So we just and it would get we was we was making more money and we was getting promoted at the same time for for where we were working. So it was like all these things were happening. So it's like. I just remember just invoice after invoice, which is we were just like getting on top of it. We was like, we didn't want to go into debt with this wedding. We, you know, we heard stories of people taking out loans and all. I was like, uh uh-uh, uh, uh uh, uh uh. We're going to act our wage or rise to the occasion. Because <laughs> we, we had goals. We like, we had specific goals we wanted to do. And we just was like, look, we want them those flowers. Okay. $3,200 here. And then it was. Five thousand here, a deposit for this, a deposit for that. You know, we we're gonna pay this in three in three months. Go like we was just, it was wild, it was wild, but it was it was so worth it. It was so worth it, and it was just, it was a, it was. That's when we got like a big joint account. I felt like it was during the time we got like a big joint account, and we was just doing a thousand things, making it happen, making it work. Um, I feel like planning a wedding with your spouse or your soon to be spouse could be an activity, a building activity, like an activity to 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 see how you all can manage things. We we've we've lived together, we've done all of that, but I just feel like when we was planning the wedding, the responsibility, the accountability and hitting the goals and doing everything, I think it brought us together. I think I think it brought us more together, you know? Um and then here we are, two years later, nine years as a couple, two years married. Yep, yep, yep. So, uh, this anniversary weekend, let me just get into that. It was a lot. We did the most.com, but we was able to we was able to do it perfectly and masterfully. I don't recommend people try this at home. I don't know what we were thinking, but let let me just start by saying, you know, just such a lovely man. Just uh just everything. Um it was a surprise within a surprise. We were both trying to surprise each other, but in the process realized we had to communicate what we were doing because if we did not, we would have probably not been able to pull this off. So the plan initially on my end was, oh, we should go out and have a weekend in New York City, go to a really nice hotel, which went to the Langham. That's where we stayed. And then... After that, you know, we were going to go to La Bernadine, which was incredible, as you can imagine, but just beyond incredible. And I'll talk more about it in a minute. But that was my plan. We was going to go out to New York. We was going to go to La Bernadine, um, you know, stay for brunch later that that next day, hang out with probably um, Abel, our good friend, and, you know, do some checking out of the city or something, you know, but like it was gonna be a cute, chill weekend, nice, luxurious hotel, no fuss, no anything, no nothing. Well, some long, I think around the birthday, you know, I told him, I said, listen, well, he knew to clear out his Friday night and potentially Saturday. And then he tells me, well, you know, you gotta scratch your plans for Saturday. And I said, what you mean, scratch my plans for Saturday? What you talking about? He's like, so then it was like, well, you know, I don't think I told him we were going to New York, but I told him that we were going out of town, but nearby, because he knows I'm not a get on an airplane, 
for the weekend type of person. Uh, you know, I did a lot of that for the book tour, but I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to go to another city, tra- you know, yada, yada, yada. So he hits me up and he's like, oh, you know, I want to show you where we're going, you know, and I had everything planned out. So I was like, oh, perfect. Okay. So I was like, let me see what you got planned. So he gives me this beautiful like envelope and I open it up and it has like this like placard card and it's like a really nice like itinerary planned out and I'm looking at it and it says that we're going to Cleveland on Saturday and I was like well my he told me this a week ago so he didn't talk about the details he's just like we're gonna go to Cleveland I was like okay so when is that happening he says oh well you know after New York you know I was planning for us to do a road trip to go to Cleveland and then we was going to do a couple of things there and it was going to get back on Sunday night. I said, road trip? He's like, oh, yeah, we was going to drive to Cleveland do make these stops. I was like, okay, I'm so happy you told me this. I said, well, first of all, we will not be doing a road trip to Cleveland, Ohio, sir, because, um, you know, listen, I don't know. I was like, have you, you know, he was, he was going to do the car. I was like, um, out here in this day and age? I said, let me, let me, let me look. Look, we don't have to do that. We have, a, you know, I have American Airlines. I want to use my points, you know, get my miles. So, you know, I'm hype or whatever like that. Because I'm just like, uh, there are several things that could be done that we can do. Um, so, I am, I'm like, let me, let me look at my American Airlines, my, 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 you know, my Platinum Plus. Let me look at these points. So the crazy part was was that we was able to get a really good get really good flight round trip flight from Cleveland um, back to Philly all that so in doing that I was able to then keep one night at the hotel without forfeiting well having to cut the second night but I didn't have any penalty because I was able to do it within a week which was a lifesaver so I changed the itinerary up a little bit so I was like okay. We're going to Cleveland. We'll figure out what's going on in Cleveland, Mr. Mr. Surprise. I'm happy you said something. But I but I was able to get the um schedule done <clears throat> where I was able to move some stuff around with the flights. So Mission Impossible came, which is basically, okay, we're going, we're leaving Friday, midday, get to the hotel, relax, go to dinner. And then take the flight. There was a flight we had scheduled for like 9 a.m. in Philly. So we had to get a 6 a.m. train. We had to get up like at like 5 a.m. Because we was in we was downtown. We was in the middle of Manhattan. So we weren't we wasn't that far from the Penn Station, but and we wasn't that far from the restaurant either. It was very interesting where we were located. But we was able to get on, get up at 5 a.m. We made it to the Penn Station, got on the 6 a.m. train back to Philly, got to Philly at 7.30 a.m., went straight to the airport, made it without a hitch um, because, of number one, we had pre-check, and number two, it was, it was a little early, but we had that, that pre-check saved us, of course, got to the flight. Our flight got updated to, uh, to first class because of those lovely, incredible uh, platinum points like now because I'm I'm at um, platinum status or platinum plus status I get upgrades faster for flights so we both got upgraded to first class took a 90 minute flight to Cleveland which was a very short flight the flight was actually it was actually an hour and four minutes once we was in the air it was very quick 
I was surprised because I've never been to Cleveland before. So we make it on the flight. We get back. We get to our hotel here in downtown Cleveland. We arrive around 11 um, a.m. And then we get an early check in at the hotel. And the rest is history. We was able to pull it off. And then Saturday, you know, we had a 6, 6, 6 p.m. flight. Got back to Philly around 7.30-ish. Went to dinner after that, and the rest is history. So it was a, it was a, it was the, the logistical aspect of the trip was important that we communicated before we got real in. Because if it, we would have said another night at a hotel, I wasn't going to want to leave. But at the same time, he had not had any plans for that Saturday because he assumed we were going to do a road trip. And I was like, oh, no, no, baby, we don't. We don't do road trips. I mean, I don't have a road trip to like Delaware or somewhere in Pennsylvania, but I just feel like as a black person at this day and age, like I can't just be out here just doing road trips, especially to places we've never done it before. Like if we try to follow a map or something, that could get wild. You know, I'm not worried about going to Cleveland. I'm worried about leaving out late at night. Like that's a long, that's a lot of labor. Like driving is no joke. I think he said between six to nine miles, uh, six to nine hours. I was like, no. And he put a mouse in the car. And then, you know, you never know. You, the stories people get stopped. Like, I don't drive. I don't know if people know this, but I don't have a driver's license. And I never understood why. I don't, I don't know what it is about my, I don't know if it's a phobia to driving, but it's just like, for me, it's this one of those things I think about a lot. Like, uh, like if I could avoid it. And I've been able to avoid it because of, um, Trains, planes, and Uber automobiles. But I do see the use of... I, I do understand why cars can be convenient because when me and J- Mr. Johnson go out to dinner, sometimes we go to Jersey or Delaware, it is easier to just do a car ride versus doing a train everywhere. Like, I remember taking train rides at Trenton back in the day. Oh, that was, I mean, that wasn't bad, but it's just like all the hustle and bustle. You know, I try to reduce as much move around traffic, especially because we're still in a pandemic. And fortunately, I haven't gotten COVID or any flu symptoms because I think this week I'm going to finally get my um, COVID booster and my flu shot. Because I waited, you know, they 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 really, you know, again, I'm not a physician. Depending on your health circumstances, you know, the, it might be more immediate for you to get the booster or get your flu shot. I'm not making any prescriptions. I am not a licensed uh, physician, so I am not giving anyone health advice here. But for me, I was told specifically because of my immune system and my circumstances on that front that I could wait a little longer to take um to take the get to get the shots and the boosters because <clears throat> a lot of times you don't want to get them too early in the season. They say experts say because you don't want to. Um, what else did they say? They say you don't want the season to go when you you know the 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 potency of the vaccine in your system is you know lesser. So you know the goal idealistically they say is like mid October, late October. You know that that cusp around there because then you know you'll be protected from. You get ultimate protection at the at the highest level from peak flu season, and it covers that peak flu season because we're not in peak flu season yet. We're getting we're we're pretty much getting closer now. But like for those who took the late August, I remember 
when I was teaching, and it was like during after school, um, public school, you know, programming and stuff like that, when I was at Westfield High, I remember the teachers would get their flu shots like late August, and like everybody would get it before school started because of, you know, I guess interaction with the kids. But I think now, you know, for me at least, I was like, I want to wait this out. And I heard apparently that the flu vaccine this season is really good or really effective. That's what uh, folks are saying. So, you know, we'll, you know, we'll see. But just wanted to put that there. But the weekend itself and what, what I thought about all these restaurants and the cities and things. Um, Labrador in, in New York City. It was in Manhattan. It was the heart of the city. It is a Michelin star, world-class fine dining institution. Like, if you want to talk about fine dining, restaurants for the over 20 years, for the past 20 years, have looked at La Bernadine as one of those restaurants. The story of the owner, um, of the chef, the lead chef, top chef, executive owner, Eric, you know, the the food, the, the, the ambiance, everything about it is the epitome of, like, fine American dining. I mean, this is a Michelin star winning restaurant. It was, it was fabulous. It was incredible. It was, it's one of the best restaurants in the world, apparently. One of the top, the 50 best restaurants in the world. It's, it's incredible. And it's, I, I don't have anything, I have no, I mean, listen, what I think is interesting that I've realized with restaurants that do well and don't do well, this is a restaurant that is attentive without being, um, aggressive they're thoughtful without being tacky their hospitality is warming and not overbearing there was a lot of things that you know when you think about a perfect pitch perfect restaurant we talk about service and the whole experience was so much at ease. It was an ease to it. It was, it didn't feel like the, people think that when you go to an, I guess a very fine dining institution, that there's supposed to be a lot of huff and puff and over dramatic. Actually, the best restaurants are the ones where they are attentive. They don't oversell you. They check on you. They give you space. They read the room. They read your energy. They remember details that you put in the reservation. It's a very seamless process that's done there. They run that restaurant with a tight ship. Every little detail. The way they would turn those tables, you'll turn around. You're like, where my fork? Whoa, my forks, where they come? I mean, they're just so, they run it like a well-oiled machine. And everybody is on point. Everyone knows what they're supposed to do. Everyone knows when to come. And they are, they're just masters at what they do over there. It's, it's a very, I was just fascinated with the way that they, the restaurant was being run. I was like, this is what I'm talking about. You go somewhere really nice and you spend a nice pretty penny. You want to feel like you're somewhere being with the utmost treatment. And they really excel at that. Like, I just think that was, I mean, the food we're going to get into, but like, it's just, just the, that alone, it's just, you know, it's, I don't know. I don't know what is going on restaurants nowadays, but it just seems like you really, the, the, the entire etiquette of just restaurant management has just really went down the tubes. I mean, it's just, I mean, some of these restaurants in the service, 
is like they're bloodthirsty. They just have so many nerves in it, so many, you know, just just little creaks. And I don't want to be a Hollywood girl. I'm just saying that it's just been interesting. It's just you can appreciate a very calming, ease, chill restaurant that you can just, even with all of the the grandeur of the restaurant itself, these people are not losing sight of what's that per what's who's the per who is the person of interest, which in that in this in that restaurant it is the people who come in there and really pay in some cases a rent someone's rent for a meal. It's it's just a yeah I I some of the best service I've I've ever had at a restaurant just off the top. Now let's get into the food. The food was multi-coursed. Um, this is a place that you look at and you say, oh, this is like the small portions restaurants. It is and it isn't in the sense that you get about seven courses. I mean, most delicious. We, we did the tasting. You could do the, we did the chef's tasting. So the chef just took it from there for us. And then we paired it with cocktails and wine. And so it was a very solid dinner. But, you know, I, the portion sizes, um, with the multi course and what you're eating. So it was like a seafood experience. I was definitely full by the time it was over. Everything is just done real fine. Like the ingredients are super rich. The everything has a story to it. Every ingredient, every placement, everything about it just had an attention to detail that was just spotless. Um I loved it. I loved it a lot. I had a good time. It was great meeting the wonderful people that were there. They were so hospitable. And it was such a romantic Friday night. It was just everything about Friday. Mm, TMI. Um, <laughs> but it was just a very, it was a very lovely Friday night. Um, got up at five and then went straight to the, you know, the the Penn Station. Then got there. I felt like it was like that blur between 5 a.m. to 11 a.m. was just like, it just was like, what, what was that video Gaga, Gaga say? Car, plane. Train, car, plane. I mean, when she talks about her touring back in the day, I I think that's exactly how I I, I, I could describe it. it. Was we got on the car? It took us to the Penn Station. Got to Penn Station. Took the train. Took the train. It took another uh, Uber to the airport, and you know, got to the airport on the plane. Got off the plane. Took another. Like we were just going, and we just wanted to make sure we hit our marks. And it was cool because also our flight experience was not. Um, you know, chaotic. Sometimes people get are used to getting on, you know, moving and luggages. We we had one big suitcase that we used, and then we had our carry-ons, and we was able to make it work. So once we got to Cleveland, we got here, we got cozy, we took a nap because that's what we do. Got up for dinner. I had to get there. We got to the restaurant at five fifteen, which was an early dinner. I was like, why are we doing an early dinner? This is this is a lot. So we do an early dinner at a place called The Last Page. When I tell you that these Midwestern portions, how could I forget, were incredible. The Last Page is one of the best restaurants in Cleveland. It's very respected, very popular, um, new American restaurant. Um, if I could describe it, I would say it's the Vernick of... Uh, the Midwest. <laughs> it gave me, it reminded me of Vernick, except what I will say 
is that the portions were hella huge. They were they were big and juicy. I we had a spread. We had a spread. I got a really great pork chop that was just so fall flavor with the. It was a it was like a pear or something they used, but it was a glaze on that pork chop, and it was boneless and it was thick cuts. It was juicy. It was so perfect. And we oh gosh, we had that. We had. This tomato salad that they had that was really good. These roasted carrots with this yogurt tahini dip situation with pomegranates. I mean, it was just a very great season affair. Mr. Johnson, he cannot turn down a half chicken for the life of him. He got this succulent half chicken that was roasted with these potatoes, these Yukon fingling potatoes. I mean, it was... It was just great food. It was so good. It was, oh, it was great. The cocktails were super strong. So strong that Mr. Johnson did something for the first time. He typically, when he goes out, he'll get an old-fashioned. He's like an old-fashioned. He doesn't do Manhattans. That's just too strong for him. But he likes him a good old-fashioned variation. So this old-fashioned, though, it was a big old glass. And it was strong. He had to switch it out for my time. I said, oh, you couldn't handle it. First of all, when I tried to sip it, even I felt like I was like it feels like smoking. I don't even smoke, but I was like, if you if you whatever that, <laughs> and I was like, ooh, what is this? I'm like, do you drink this all the time? This top energy, I can't. Then yeah, he settled down, got a mata. Enough of that sipping off of that would have he would have been done for what we had next. So the last page was it was a great restaurant. Really loved it, Cleveland. You know, every restaurant we've been to in Cleveland was 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 good. I was impressed. I had no problems. But then the real the big surprise. I mean, that restaurant was a great surprise. But the real surprise was that he got us third row seat tickets to go see The Wiz. We saw the pre-Broadway production of The Wiz. This new Wiz remake that it was been the revival of The Wiz. That everyone's been talking about, you know, um, Candy Burris and her husband Todd Tucker are one of the producers. This is the musical with Deborah Cox in it. She's playing the Good Witch. This is that one that everyone's been been chattering about. There's a guy named Avery Wilson who was is a popular uh, queer singer. He's in the show as a scarecrow. And that young lady who plays Dorothy, oh my goodness, she's 24 years old. And she is going to be, I think, Tony Bound with this performance. But... They're doing a national, like, traveling show. It's very interesting what they're doing. This is a pre-Broadway show. So the show is coming to Broadway in the spring of 2024. So basically, they've been on this, like, national pre-show going all across the country and getting people excited about the show before it hits Broadway and it kills it. You all, we're going to be talking about The Wiz next year. I get the sense that if they really get... if I mean, if, if they really stay on that momentum... It is going to be, I think, the front runner for the Tony Award for Best Revival of a Musical. It is incredible. I mean, the vocals. This is a show where everybody can sing. And I and everybody can sing. Everybody had a moment. Everybody killed it. The Tin Man, the Dorothy, my God, this girl, she, oh my, at the end, at the very end, when she sings Home, you thought Stephanie Mills had vocals, who was the original person who played um, in this film, but it was just well. Then they talk about Diana Ross. Well, we think about Stephanie Mills, but she just she just kills it. She just just phenomenal. Diane, uh, I mean Deborah Cox. I mean she's I mean she's just she's the witch. She comes in with her glim her just glorious gown. She's like like Gilda, I think is her um 
she's not caught that in the whiz, of course, but she's just full of life and she's glamorous. The show was so good. It was so packed. The theater we was at was called was Playhouse Square, which is like the biggest, I think, theaters next to Broadway for theater, I believe they said. Um, Cleveland is a very interesting city. They have the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, um, you know, uh, Academy Library, which is downtown. But they also have like this nice theater theater spread that's like huge. That theater was huge. I mean, we were on the third row, comfortable seats. He just, I mean, it's so funny because in my mind I was thinking, oh, I'm just so happy to be here. This is so crowded. This these this would have been a leg. We're probably going to be in a little, you know, you know, next to orchestra or something. The when we just kept going down and down and down, I was like, oh my goodness, the love, the love. It was such a great show. Oh, uh, I, I I'm still on high about it. So I know the Broadway version will have Wayne Brady playing the Wiz, but in this show, the actor who played the Wiz, I thought was great and honestly should stay on with them when you know when um when Brady you know uh D- Wayne Brady decides to take a break or you know a lot of times these shows have like major actors and Hollywood people that play them they only the the Hollywood actor whomever plays it for the original run or prior to a certain extent then they get off the production and then the final main actors so as has happened with this recent show um um what is it? Sweeney Todd the demon street the demon bar the bar the demon barber of Fleet Street which is Sweeney Todd. So Sweeney Todd um, had a revival recently with Josh Groban, and he was in the main character of Sweeney Todd. He got a Tony nomination. Josh Groban on Broadway has been a thing lately. He's been doing this for quite some time, a couple of years. He's really into this. Well, he was in Sweeney Todd revival, but he um, recently signed off for that role, and he was there with another actress who also played in it, uh, lead. Um, but he he was he did not stay. The whole time. So whoever is going to be his uh, replacement of whatever is going to have that role. But uh, I'm still on cloud. I'm still on cloud nine about that show. Um, I really loved it. I really think, I mean, just so black. And there's also like this very, with the production, this queer, black queerness that kind of, that that doesn't even kind of impermeates the, the way the show is done. And I appreciated how modern it felt. Um, it, it really felt like a progressive telling of this story in a way that didn't ruin the original, but also got with the sign of the, t- of the times. I don't want to tell it. I don't want to tell the show. But all I'm saying is that when it comes to your city, if you can get tickets, go and get them. Um, we was able to hit it before because Sunday was the last day that it, it runs in Cleveland. It's now going to leave Cleveland and go to another city. So, you know, if you get a chance to see it before it comes out, check it out. Um, so the next day, well, we did a nightcap after the show and we were doing a lot that night. That Saturday night was lit. We went to Porco's Lounge, which is a tiki cocktail bar in Cleveland. And let me tell you, I was like, wow, you know, you know, I'm trying to find more. I I think there used to be a tiki bar in Philly in the neighborhood. It was called Tiki. Do y'all remember that? Maybe it was like for five seconds. It didn't last that long. This is like. During 2016. And I remember that because in summer 2016, when Cory Booker had came to Philly and spoke during the Democratic National Convention, he was rumored to be going to Tiki, that bar in the neighborhood. 
had a sip on that because I know some of y'all are trying to be messy and I'm not getting messy with you all because I'm that's not how I was trying to tell that. But anyway, let me clarify before the rumor mills start. His campaign team had said that he would be at Tiki in, in the neighborhood because that was a spot that stayed open late. And so that's why he was going to be there. I went um, that night with a bunch of my friends and we were thinking he was coming and I don't think he ever came. I think after that speech and how much he crushed it and how everybody was all hype about his speech at the DNC that night, you know, he just probably was chilling with Hillary somewhere. I don't remember, but he did not come that night to Tiki in the neighborhood. But I don't think that Tiki Bar is still there anymore. R.I.P. Nothing ever stays in the neighborhood for the most part, unless it's from, you know, Mars attorney. <laughs> you know, if this attorney child, it's going to be there. But everything else can wither at the vine, okay? They ain't taking no little nonas, no barboos or none of them. Them always going to stay. And even if it don't stay, she'll, rev- she'll make it something different, you know? that That's how they do over there. I mean, she's good at what she do. The, 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 the they're, they're, the her and her partner, they are great business owners in the neighborhood. But outside of them, I don't nothing, anything can go. I mean, Michael Weiss, he won't leave. You know, he his stuff won't leave. You know, it's like they just they the both of them the three well add male hyphens the three of them run the neighborhood. Whatever they own in the neighborhood is going to stay in some variation. Everything else, you come there, fall in love with a nice little cafe or something, and you turn around the cafe gone three months later, four months later. People just be so ambitious to throw stuff there, but it's just so competitive and the rent prices are ridiculous over there. You know, it's not even the neighborhood anymore. It's like Midtown Village. But anyway, I digress. Porco's Lounge in Cleveland was great. It was a tiki bar with some really great like Hawaiian themed food and, 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 and Filipino food to a certain extent. That lumpia, which those nice little pork stuff rolls for appetizers, which was divine with that really great sauce. They had... Um, what was it they have? They had, um, hmm. oh, we had this big cocktail that had like a, a, a candle in the middle that was on fire, like a sugar cube, like I think was a lighter. And it was like fire in the middle. It was a scorpion cocktail. They described it as, and it was really huge. And we, we had these big, tall straws and we shared it together. And it was so, so good. There was also, um, other volcano themed drinks or like strong drinks. But it was like very cute tiki drinks. They had the little umbrellas on them and the little flowers and stuff. It was just so cute. It was a perfect night. And then we got home, went to sleep. And then before we left Cleveland, we went to uh, Jaja Brazilian. I think it's Jaja, haha, maybe. But it's a Brazilian like steakhouse. But it's like a grand brunch buffet they have. And um, I, I, I dug in. I took full advantage. You know, I... It was, I mean, between getting on the flight, you know, we went there for that brunch. We did a late checkout. I love late checkouts at a hotel. So you can, you don't got to, st- you know what I mean? Like a lot of times they want you to leave at 11. Like, you know, listen, I, I believe in the 24 hour rule. You can't tell a person to check in at a hotel at three o'clock, but expect them to leave at 11 a.m. I think that's problematic. That's like, like, that, like that's not even a full night stay, a full day. Like that's a little, that's a little reckless. I feel like you should let people have a 24 hour, but listen. Some can promise you whatever. So we checked out around 1, got to brunch around 1.30. Brunch was on on point. And then we was there for a little bit. Then we headed to the airport, made it to Philly, did dinner, 
in South Philly, which is hilarious. We did dinner at um, this place I've been wanting to go to for a minute, Bahamine and Bottles, which is on South Street. It is a Viennese restaurant that is just killing it. I thought Gabriella's Vietnam was the best Viennese in the city. It is one of the best, but listen, with a restaurant like Buy Me and Bottles, I mean, it's just so cozy and comforting. It was just comforting Viennese food and great dishes, shaking beef. Oh, so good. So good. Everything was good there. And you all saw the pictures on Instagram. I said, I know this weekend, for those who don't love love, was probably sick of me. But you know what? There's a lot of things going on in the world right now that you just got to take the time to give yourself joy. People will not respect you or give you your time at times. I've I've learned this. And there's no shade, no shade. But I have realized that the world is always going to have chaos. And look, and I'm going to be there for, for most of it, right? But there has to be a point. I mean, for me, my striking the balance of, you know what? I can't always be the go-to person in lines of fire. I have to be measured. I have to be disciplined. I have to also be reflective and preserve because I don't just live for myself or for other people's issues. I actually have a family and I have friends and I have other things that, that I need to, and I have been focused on prioritizing. And so I realized that a lot of times people don't respect that. People don't get that because people expect you. And it's a, you know, we, it, it's so interesting because everyone talks this self, the self-care bullshit, which I don't say self-care is bullshit. I believe people should take self-care. I just think that folks have overran this word that they actually have done the quite opposite of what it entails. First of all, in my opinion, I'm just talking from from my, from my thoughts. I just feel like self-care is an intimate thing for the person who's involved. It's self-care. It's not our fucking care. I don't need to know what you do for self-care. It's not me or my body. It's not me to judge what you do. You do what is good for you, which makes sense for you. Be a, be an adult and be responsible for your decisions, your actions. However, this this performativeness of self-care, of, of making it like this aesthetic, like, oh, this is what self-care looks like. Going to the fucking, you know, spa. And then when you say when you say you go to the spa, they say, oh, that's good self-care. And it's like, well, what if I just wanted to lay down on my couch and be in silence for 45 minutes? To get my thoughts together. That is also a form of self-care, people. It is what you do for yourself in a way that preserves your mental space, your head space, your, yourself, your, your health, your well-being. It's your nutrition. It's what you eat. It's all of those things. But the thing is, it is for you. And I think too many people feel like they have to explain. When you're in a position where you still have to justify and explain choices involving the wellness of yourself, is that really self-care? Because you're still putting on the performance. You're still overthinking what this is supposed to be. Because we live in a capitalist society that puts a price tag on how one is supposed to partake in it. I have had situations for me where that self-care was, I need a fucking Primo's hoagie. I want my iced tea. I want my salt and vinegar chips. And I don't want to look at my fucking emails or anything or talk to anyone for two hours. I want to watch... Um, you know, loving hip hop compilations on my big screen TV. And I just want to have that time to myself to just be at ease. And and I'd be like, once I do that, I'm like, you know what? Now, what the hell do y'all want? Because I am, I am, I am checked in. I am at Zen. I'm at peace. Now, what the fuck do y'all want? It could be that simple. 
It does not necessarily require all of these other things. Oh, I got to get out of the country and go to Hawaii. Or not even what well, I is out of the country, but you know how the girls do. It's like, oh, I want to go to, you know, I need to go to, to, to Jamaica for 10 days. Maybe that's what you need to do. And you know what? That is all the power to you. But there are people who think that they have to. It, it saddens me when I hear people think that they have to build up to having self-care. Meaning like, oh, I need to save my queen so I can partake in self-care. What the fuck are we telling? Where are the therapists? The licensed therapists? And some of these, let me, okay, listen. We got to stop selling that to everyday people, making them think that they have to do the most ridiculous, you know, exercise in capitalism in order to be at peace and relieve. No. Where the grandma's at? You know, I remember my grandmother used to, when she was alive, she was a, look, I want some tea and I want some quiet. And she would like to be to herself, read the Bible, sip her tea and just chill. Or there were times when, when she would get home, it was in the summertime, she was working or doing something. She'd come home and she would watch Wheel of Fortune and she would get her life. And that's all she needed, you know? And I just think, we need to just talk about self-care a little differently because I don't know. It's, I just feel like people in my generation and younger, they just feel like they got to just put on the fireworks in the name of self-care. Now it's one thing if you just have a good birthday weekend or you just trying to have a, or whatever you're trying to do, it's not necessarily tailored, but I just feel like this idea of mental relief being a goal rather than a, you know, an immediate action I just think the way that we we talk about it and we treat it, we just gotta we just have to rethink that. Just my thoughts personally, but um, no, I I had a really great weekend, a very romantic weekend. It was a very great weekend, and it came after a very good week. Um, you know, the Cheney book tour appearance stop was by far probably. Ooh, I don't want to say. I mean, I loved I loved all of my stops, but that was probably my favorite one outside of the launch party at the Comcast Technology Center. It was just the students there. We had over 150 people. Um, majority of the students from Cheney came, which was the goal. I autographed so many copies. I think I I mean, I autographed so many copies that I couldn't even count. Shout out to Harriet's. Shout out to Miss Patty Jackson for being on this journey with me. You know, every every stop, you know, but she was there at the very beginning um, at the book launch. She, we was in conversation about the book and then she came for the second to last stop because my final stop is going to be this week um, at Ryder University. Where I'm going to give a little guest lecture talk called Don't Get Canceled um, and then indulge the students and sign over 100 copies. They're, they've got over 125 RCPs and they bought copies in advance. So I'll be signing some copies there. But you know, and that will be the that will be the conclusion of the traditional book tour. Not to say that I won't be going on tour and traveling, but when I have speech, speech, when I have speaking engagements, you know, people can, you know, there'll most likely will be books available for people to purchase. You know, um, hopefully. So, you know, there's always going to be opportunities to catch me. But you know, this this experience that started in late February and now is going to end in late October. What a run! It was what eight months of of touring and traveling and connecting and touching lives, sixteen cities. It, it it's it's I'm 
I'm excited. I'm excited about what's next. I'm excited about what I'm working on that's coming out. Uh, we announce soon. You know, we got to still look at 2024, you know, look at what's coming later and, you know, next. But it's uh, it, it was a, it's, it's been a great tour and it was great catching you all there. Several, so many of you who listen to the podcast from other cities across the country, but then would meet me at those cities. Um yeah, words can't describe the the level of gratitude I have for the, for you all and for that. So, thank you. Um Also this week I went to Festival, which is an event that happens every year. It supports good causes. All the food community comes out, the the top the top chefs, the big the big name restaurants come and participate and it's a real it's a real beauty. It's a real beauty seeing, you know, all the like they serve out these great small portions of their uh, meals, but it's so many restaurants, so so many bites. I mean, you're you're getting to the brink, and then there's cocktails throughout the night. It's a fabulous time, and it's at French Arts, which gives it the funky, freaky, you know, French arts culture of it all mixed in with the high cuisine and the food. It's just so out of this world, but it was a great experience. I mean, shout out to Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, who were there? I was. It, it happened on Thursday night, and so right after I, I went there for like an hour, so I like made like a cocktail hour for myself. I was able to get all the bites I wanted, and then got all my little sips on it and dipped because I had dinner with a friend at High Street Philly, which is the new, you know, the new reimagined High Street that used to be in Old City, but now is in Center City. And High Street is incredible. It is incredible. It is at um, it's on Ninth. Really in the area where there's not too much going on. Like there's a, there is a De Bruno Brothers over there, and it's connected to that De Bruno Brothers area. But it's it's beautiful. It's beautiful. The food, the food, the food is top tier, top tier. Mm. It is, it is great. I mean, the thing that I love the most about that place is. It's a very bakery-focused restaurant, so they make their own pasta, they make their own dough, they have great bread, they have great pastries, everything in there is just, you, when you got a place that has a bakery inside that's doing their own creation, it's just start, you start there, then you go to the degrees, but Ellen Yen doesn't miss, Ellen Yen does not miss. Um, the cocktails are really good, I, I really like the cocktails, the cocktails were just, oh, just... Mm. They had something for everybody on that cocktail menu. Um, but really, really loved High Street. Just uh, another great restaurant. I, I I mean, I went to so many restaurants this week. I, I think this is probably the the most exquisite restaurant week I've personally had in my entire life. Like, I haven't hit that. I don't recall the last time I hit so many, like, like five-star, five-star, like, you know, killer Restaurants from various concepts, from French, like La Berdinin is French, but then you have, you know, High Street, which is New American, just like the last page. But then you got Vietnamese cuisine, like Buy Me and Bottles, that is killing in South Street. You just got so many good options. And then, oh yes, that Brazilian steakhouse. Oh my goodness, for brunch, Jaja. That you know, like yeah. Ugh. Mm. Mm-mm-mm. 
But yeah, that was my weekend in a nutshell. That's that's how I'm feeling right now. Now let's get on to the hot topics. So let me just say that it was interesting to see Trump perish in this way. This is a big deal. I know that we've been kind of falling asleep on Trump, but we actually need to revisit what's going on because it's being quiet. And anytime it's quiet in Trump land, let me tell y'all something. That can either be a good thing or a bad thing. But the thing I'm saying here is that it's a good thing because that means that Trump is in trouble. When Trump is, 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 is you know, kind of laying low, that's because he's in trouble. Um, I presume he's in trouble because let me tell you why. The latest guilty pleas from two key allies in Trump's high-profile Georgia election interference case has put a lot of new pressure on him, okay? And it's about to raise questions about whether his once-loyal associates may one day flip on him because those guilty pleas got people thinking there might be a flip. Now, these are two attorneys. The two attorneys that you all probably remember, Kenneth Chesbro and Sidney Powell, they pleaded guilty um, to charges, to related crimes connected to this election interference last week, and they agreed to testify against other defendants. Now, they've been charged, according to USA Today, they have been charged with playing separate roles in alleged multi-pronged conspiracy to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. But now, this third defendant, now this is in September, this was Scott Hall. He pled guilty in September because they he said that their deals bolstered the weapons in a prosecutor's toolbook, quote-unquote. And it may pressure other defendants to flip. Which I can see that because it's three of them so far, three of them. A Georgia attorney said once you get a couple of people pleading, it starts sort of an avalanche of pleas. Now, this is what Chandler Summer, a journey, uh, a, a Georgia attorney who previously worked as both a prosecutor and a public defender um, in the state had said. Now, this is what they said to the press. Now, in addition to agreeing to testify, the three of them will turn over relevant documents to the state of Georgia. And they are prohibited from communicating with other witnesses and defendants in the case. This is serious. This is really serious. Because this information from these three associates really could could, could hype up evidence in other pending cases. Because one of them is the federal election meddling case that Trump is supposed to have scheduled to start on trial in March in Washington. So next March... He's about to go to trial in Washington for a federal election milling case, which is separate from this Georgia case. But what I'm saying to you is people are starting to flip or the potential flipping. They're pleading guilty, which means they're going to acknowledge wrongdoing. And who are they going to rat on? Or I don't even say rat on, cooperate with authorities with. Somebody's going to take the fall. Who's going to take the fall? We, I guess we already kind of know, huh? I'm just, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm watching. Mm. So last week I was telling you about Jim Jordan and how he's been failing to get the votes required to be the next speaker of the House. Um, He was persistent this past week. And as you all know, there were several additional votes taken and the people are like, nah, it got so bad that he did worse after his first try, 
That's how much people didn't want him. He talked about unifying people, bringing people together. Dude, your involvement with the insurrection, your entertainment of all that happened on January 6th made you immediately unqualifiable for this position. But you tried to reinvent yourself as a person that can bring people together. Nah, it ain't happening. You're not getting it, okay? So here's the crazy part. A large group of House GOP lawmakers announced on Friday that they are interested in running for the speaker, okay? Which is a lot of, there's going to be an interesting, predictably, I can see Monday, right? You know, as you all listen to this call, uh, listen to this podcast at the beginning, right? I can see Monday morning while we're, you're driving and listen to this podcast and get it ready for your day, that those GOP lawmakers in D.C. are getting together to figure out what's happening. And this is why, right? This is why it matters, because these hostilities, I mean, these GOP fractions have escalated since, you know, Kevin McCarthy. Now, you know, and then also Steve Scalise, which didn't get it either, you know, because they got out the race, you know, well, well, he bowed the race. Now, and there's a conference voting to remove Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan as the nominee. So there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of hostility. Like, there is, there's conference voting to remove Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan out. They don't want him to be the nominee. They're like, enough of him. We're tired of him. Get the hell out the way. It's not happening. Um, House Majority Leader Steve Scalise, who was a number two to Kevin McCarthy, you know, he was he bowed out the race because he didn't think he had the votes. So now apparently there are several people that have officially announced their bids to be speaker or they have expressed interest in the role. This is House Majority Whip Tom Emmer, House Republican Vice Conference Chair Mike Johnson. You got Pete Sessions and Jack Bergman and Austin Scott and Dan Muser. You got Roger Williams, you got some, you got two people from Texas. You well, actually three people from Texas. You got three Republicans, and then you got Byron Donalds. That's the black man, the black Republican congressman in Florida who is just a clown. Um, you know, it's a lot. It's a lot of interesting players that are showing up and showing out over there. Um, I I don't know. I think the more time that they delay this process, the more incompetent they look. And at this point, it just looks like there's no unison in the Republican Party, which makes it it's going to be very interesting for them in 2024. Because, look, I know Trump, I mean, listen, with the, with Trump having what he got going on, the, the, the in-house fighting amongst Republicans, I mean, they're acting like the way they criticize Democrats. Like, the unity has just not been there for the, for the Republicans. It's, it's been very interesting. They just will not give it up. So let me tell you all something that happened um, this week in Philadelphia. Um, this is this is very, very, very interesting uh, for so many reasons. So a lot of people who saw um, or either listened to me live on WRD 96.1 AM, 96.1 FM, 900 AM, Progressive Black Talk Media. Look at me memorizing my radio host. But. I was hosting the show on Thursday and Thursday a city council session. This past Thursday was probably one of the most chaotic, darkest days at Philadelphia city council. And it was excruciating. It was excruciating to be there because it was just an unnecessarily divisive, heated, 
emotionally driven council session that quite frankly, I think created more harm than good. So here's what I'm talking about. City council members, Kenyatta Johnson and Mike Driscoll, both made a proposal. Um, they pre presented a resolution that spoke out against the Hamas attack on Israel. This resolution um, basically was very, the language of the resolution was very declarative on um, peace in the Middle East for both Palestinians and members of the Jewish community. Um, it emphasized a lot of language around protecting Israel, which is, you know, which is a part of, you know, the way in which they viewed peace. But there were elements of it that seemed to, and other people's opinion, I'm not speaking for myself, I'm just talking about what I was hearing on the ground. Um, they felt like the slant of it was going in one direction than another. They looked at the slant as being pro-Israel and not addressing the other concerns that is involved in this current war in the Middle East. And so, although they do acknowledge that the resolution itself acknowledges that they want peace, they do not discuss what some people consider to be a form of genocide. It doesn't discuss, um, you know, Islamophobia and, and, the, and the dangers that are happening to people of the Muslim faith and people who are, you know, that live on the Gaza Strip. It's a lot of language and pointedness that makes people view that it was a one-sided type of resolution in spite of certain language that showed or, or, or called for peace on both sides. And that a lot of the political motivation behind it seemed to come from a particular institution in Philadelphia that is pro-Israel. Uh, that was a perception um, that some people felt um, when they went to city council chambers. And it was in talking to people on both sides. There were pro-Palestinian uh, protests that were there, and there were pro-Israel um, activists and individuals there as well. Um, it was, you know, sitting on the corner of the council, there were arrests being made um, and escort. There were people being escorted out, um, largely the pro-Palestinian um, organizers, uh, demonstrators um, throughout the session was, you know, when it was public testimony, they, you know, were, were very much loud about what they were witnessing. And throughout the, throughout the, you know, public testimony, there was a lot of interruption from them. They were definitely heckling people and, and whatnot. But there were also some individuals um, on the other side that were antagonizing them. And I did see a man who was Jewish, who was there, and he was antagonizing some of the pro-Palestinian uh, demonstrators in the rows. Granted, a lot of the people who were pro-Palestinian protesters were, were younger. Um, some of them were Jewish. Um, a lot of them came in large drove masses to come speak out against what they felt like was city council impeding in something they knew nothing about. 
Mike Driscoll, one of the co-lead uh, sponsors on this legislation alongside of Kenyatta Johnson. But Mike Driscoll had said that he doesn't understand the complexities. He didn't understand, he, although he doesn't understand the complexities and the nuances, which in my mind, I thought to myself, well, that's interesting that you would say something like that, but then be the, the lead. But, you know, to each their own. Kenyatta um, Johnson, who is, of course, run for council president, and we got more on that in a minute. Um, he dodged reporters, uh, journalists who were there before the vote was taken um, because, you know, he took the lead in promoting this. And the 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 level of 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 anger and frustration that took place in there so so let me explain what i saw i saw a philadelphia divided i saw a room where people were just so traumatized on this situation that it did not people just could not it was just the the block was so hot you could feel it and the sheriff deputies had to come out and escort countless people. One was an older Palestinian woman. She is a novelist. Um, I got video footage and I shared it on Twitter. She was escorted out after she was um, disrupting the public testimonies. Non-violently, no physical touching people. This is all just words. But, you know, it was a lot of yelling and screaming. And the sheriff deputies was escorting her out, but aggressively. And while they did this to her... She has a seizure in the middle of them trying to take her out. And the way they are handling her, 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 her daughter is with her trying to get access to her. The police is blocking her because this woman has had a passed out on the middle of the city hall chambers. I mean, it was chaotic. And the, the whole time, you know, Daryl Clark, the council president, is trying to keep his composure, trying to keep order. But after several testimonies and after several of the heckling and the back and forth and all of this, it was tension in there. It was tension. Um, somebody could have got hurt. You know, this woman, I was worried about her, um, this novelist and the f- footage and the way that the sheriff deputies and like, you know, there were some people, some very nasty people on Twitter uh, from Philly who was not present that this man said, and I, and I had to check him. He said, um, oh, fuck around and find out in Philly regarding the... So we're, we're, we're supporting state-sanctioned... Well, see, let me... Mm. You know, there's never a reason for law enforcement to be aggressive on an unarmed elderly person. Yes, somebody is... You know, could be arguing, but like to have that kind of force exerted on somebody in a situation that that involved the person having a seizure, and you're sitting there frantic because you don't know what could have been done. It just spells liability. We're gonna talk about liability because this bill, in my opinion, given. Everything that was happening in that room, I just don't understand why it had to be a resolution. I saw members of council shake their head throughout the entire process. There were a lot of things that I can now share based on information and so that I have found out. 
from various sources that confirm these details. But I'm going to say what nobody wants to report on. But I think it's necessary for people to have context because a lot of people have been subjected to online harassment, misunderstanding. And see, when you have a podcast, you can actually talk about these things rather than just let the narrative carry. So here's some of the things that I found out. Members of city council, even though it was unanimously passed, did not want this resolution to happen. They don't want the resolution to happen because there were so many logistical reasons. One, Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia does not have any jurisdiction on what happens in the Middle East. And when I mean no jurisdiction whatsoever, they can't give money. They're not giving money over to help any of the refugees. They're not giving any money. They're not going to be talking to any Middle Eastern leaders. They're not having any global international diplomacy. They're not doing any of the above. And so they know that, first of all, the resolution is just a bunch of words. And the resolution itself doesn't do anything material to actually directly impact what happens over there. And so off of the surface, it's, it's legislation that's performative. And performative policy is oftentimes the policy that gets sometimes the most attention and work with the least amount of actual direct impact. And so I'm sitting here like, okay, so why did it happen? Well, sources tell me that it happened because Kenyatta pushed hard on it. Kenyatta Johnson, who was the co-legislator, pushed hard on it. Now his Co-author Mike Driscoll, who hasn't even been in council for a year, is not the reason why this legislation got passed, right? He co-authored it, but Kenyatta was the leader of this. He called and begged his colleagues to back him on this, to co-sponsor with him, to do all of these things. He begged. He begged. Okay? He begged. The sources ain't lying. He begged. Because nobody was on board. I mean, there were a couple of people that were, right? But the, the unanimous decision was not a unanimous decision that was just unanimous. He begged. And basically, they were strong-armed into making this decision. A lot of them didn't. Curtis didn't want to make the vote. Curtis Jones did not want to make the vote. He even expressed that he wished he wasn't doing it right now. Because he understood, and unlike the immaturity of Kenyatta, because I have... Some issues with Kenyatta on this situation. Because I think it was a selfish decision. You know, he... The, the reality is that with a resolution like that, you know that it's never going to be good for anyone. You're damned if you do. You're damned if you don't. You get involved in something like that. People think you're taking sides. No one likes you because they want you to go harder on one end and less on another. Trust me, I know. Even covering it this week, people for the first time, well, not the first time, but a, a long time, was trying to critique wordage. Oh, this is irresponsible. You shouldn't have said aggressive. You know, you should tell people what they were doing while they were kicked out. I'm sorry. Do anybody knows what demonstrators do? Do anyone know what a demonstration is or a protest? 
We understand that protesters get removed from city council when they disrupt a meeting. That has been happening forever. Some of you all stay up in Rennen House or stay up in your little, your little, you know, comfort zones and talk shit on Twitter, but I actually live in reality. Most people know. Regular people with common sense, you know, folks actually read books and go and understand how government works, knows that when sheriff deputies remove people out, it's because a disturbance is made. They're practicing their free speech, but at the end of the day, the law is the law. We know that already. But we, what we don't respect is the hostileness, the aggressiveness physically onto people, especially those of a certain age. None of that shit is okay. But people want to tone police your language because, again, you, you can never win with, with anyone in a situation where you're trying to find peace. Because there are people who just want total, complete destruction on both ends. And listen, I, you know, when you're a journalist, it's not your place to pick directly or to, to you, you can name an issue, but you're not rooted for a team or no one's team. You, you can be able to find the value in both and the flaws and all. And that's what you do. But like, it's funny because with black journalists, there, you know, we were, what happened to being objective? You told us, you know, white people said to us, oh, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta be, you know, you gotta be objective, which is, I always told y'all was a bullshit word. Oh, you gotta see both sides. Oh, but it's interesting how white people, and I'm going to say white people here, have been very much abandoning the principles of journalism and ethics or the fairness of it all in this regard, in this issue. People's personal bias comes out in ways that that they can't contain, and they expect everyone to do that because you know what? But but when we were, you know, when black folks, black Americans were covering Black Lives Matter, you all were trying to convince us to entertain the thoughts of I don't know white supremacists like David Duke. You know, you were like, oh, you know, this is a perspective that we just can't ignore. We have to get to the root of it. Oh, but let me talk to Palestinians or supporters of Palestinians and figure out what they think about this as a journalist, and I'm being called anti-Semitic. Or, you know, if I, you know, talk to, you know, certain Jewish advocates for this issue, then I am partaking in Zionism. We don't, you know, journalists don't get a fair shake in a situation like this, which we understand because then the day we got to do our fucking job and people can hate whatever they get out of what we do if we do it right. But at the end of the day, I see several issues in how this is being done in the city. And elected officials were fearful. There was some elected officials that, that told me on background that they feared that if they did not vote for this, even though they felt like it was not on the principle of them picking a side in the Middle Eastern conflict, but them just simply feeling like this is above their pay grade, that this particular matter is is only going to be polarizing, right? And that they didn't want to vote for it because of that. So the way it works is that if if you vote, if you vote to abstain, you have to literally be in a physical condition where you can you have to abstain. So no one could abstain the vote because there was no justification for the vote itself to abstain. But the the sad part is that they didn't want to vote no because they said that if they voted no, they were fearful that lobby lobby groups. Would, would intimidate them and, and, and label them as anti-Semitic within certain powerful circles. That's what they felt. 
And they didn't want to vote for, they didn't want to even come to the floor because they felt like the resolution itself was just only going to create more problems than solutions. And based on what happened in city council on Thursday, I have to agree. I just don't know why it had to be a resolution at this particular time. I just don't. And me saying that does not make me anti-Semitic. I have no, you know, desire to see Jewish people annihilated. I don't think that that should happen. I think everyone should live. I think the Palestinian people have a right to exist in this world. And I think Jewish people have the right to exist too. So let's stop with always trying to frame anyone who has a, a fair critique or disagreement as being anything less than a critical thinker. And I think that's the problem that we're landing in this world is that people do not have critical thinking skills. Earlier this week, me and my good Judy Amanda, Dr. Parks, as I call her, we went to the Flyers game. It was a great game. It was a, They won. So, you know, it was a great game on that. We just had a lovely night in Philly. It was so nice going out to check out sports. And one of the things that we talked about, because we're at the Wells Fargo Center, we're having conversations with different people around the 76ers arena drama. You know, those who support the arena say they do so because they're pro-union, pro-jobs, you know, and they want to support jobs and opportunities. And we were sitting there like, okay, personally, I'm not the craziest fan of the 76ers arena. I personally just don't understand why we need it. I just don't also trust these developers. I just feel like these developers don't have, in my opinion, a good history of, you know, being as community enriching or community forward as as they want to reinvent themselves to be now. Yes, I know the black clergy endorsed them, but you know, the black clergy endorsed a lot of things that just does not reflect the current state of the black community. So if people really think the black clergy has real power and pool in Philadelphia, I mean, they might help with a couple elections, but they've been missing the mark. And a lot of it is because I feel like there's an investment and a lot of selfish personal interest over there rather than actual common sense for the greater good of the community. So I don't really take that endorsement that seriously. And I also think that, you know, any any endorsement nowadays can be bought. <laughs> so, you know, in that situation, I, I was hearing people on both sides of the 76 Arena. You know, people talking about the gentrification. They're worried about the traffic. They want to see that impact report that's coming out, hopefully by December, that's going to expose the real consequences of the 76 Arena's 76 Arena happens. But it was just an interesting case study um, of seeing it and just seeing how people could articulate their thoughts in ways that did not lead to ad hominem attacks. And so that was the fascinating thing to me the most. And I really felt like was the case when we were looking at this whole 76 Arena. Now let's look at this now back to the Middle East conflict. We're not there. It's not, a, a, there's no civility right now with the disagreements on both sides. And I think it's because it's a very heated situation. Like, you know, you're talking about people who are really afraid that an entire community of people will not exist, that will die because of the lack of actual aid and response. Now, Biden has agreed to give $100 million in aid to the Palestinian community, you know, allowing it to go through Gaza, through Egypt, and, and trying to avoid any problems there. Um, a lot of people are saying that, you know, again, coming at him for Hamas. I look at what's going on at the University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater. 
you know, the president, Liz McGill, cannot get a break. I mean, there's been donors threatening to, you know, not fund, you know, the University of Pennsylvania because they're claiming that the campus is very different. They think the campus is 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 allowing for anti-Semitism to run rampant. There's been reports on both sides of lies, lies were in reporting um, of, of, of narratives that's being spun about what's happened on Penn's campus. Um, and it's putting the the university, the University of Pennsylvania's board of trustees, their board is in clash. People are stepping down. People are allegedly saying they're going to step down based on speaking out. There's letters of, you know, support letters from both sides of the campus saying, you know, Liz McGill isn't doing enough against anti-Semitism and what's going on in there. But then there's people saying that she's infringing upon free speech with the Palestine uh, rights, you know, conference that was held. There's a lot. There's a lot. And everybody's giving op-eds every single week over there at my at Penn. And the conversations that are being had is disheartening. As a Penn alum, it's frustrating because I just feel that in certain situations, there are people that are weaponizing their power and money to create impartiality around this matter. And I get it. That's what power looks like. But you know what? What this also makes me think about before I get into why Kenyatta Johnson is just a mess. The 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 thing for me has been that I've been on this book tour promoting the case for council culture. A lot of people I've encountered that are white, some are Jewish, really wanted to debate me about racism. Like very lots of anti-blackness in some of the sentiments. The the idea of, oh, you know, we can't support council culture because people are not going to be able to have say what they want to say. I went to the Jewish Holocaust Museum in Dallas, Texas. I'll never forget. It was during this book tour. I made a stop in Dallas at the Jewish Holocaust Museum there. And I was a speaker in favor, my promote my book, The Case for Council Culture. I was talking to another guy, and I talked about this in previous episodes. You all might recall. I was in, this was in March, I believe. I was in conversation with this man. He was white. He was a Jewish white man. And he wrote a book against council culture, pretty much. And I think his name was Jonathan, if I'm not mistaken. And he's an older white man. And I think he was gay. I think we were both gay. And we were sharing these thoughts about council culture. But he was saying that, you know, oh, he's worried about free speech violations. And, you know, you just can't just silence people that you don't agree with. And I was like, Oh, okay. Interesting. And I said, well, in that room, I was like, well, I believe in council culture. Like if you're, you know, anti-Semitic, if you're homophobic, if you're a bigot, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, we shouldn't have people like that in our society. And he just was going on and saying, you know, but people could have different ideas. And it was interesting how he took this stance when it came to racism. What's interesting now is that with all this stuff going on with the Middle East, there has been people who have led can't have called for folks to be canceled based on their stances. There are Jewish people that are calling for pro-Palestinian activists and supporters of people to be canceled, to lose their jobs. There was a story that came out about a law firm that rescinded the law job offers of three pro-Palestinian um students who went to law school, I believe Harvard or Yale or whatever, but they were basically Applied to this law firm and they got their they got rescinded. Their offers got rescinded following their them signing on to a letter that was pro-Palestinian. They framed it and they saw it and viewed the stance as anti-Semitic, even though those individuals do not believe to be so. 
But I say all that to say that they that that that, that was a cancellation, right? This is this is council culture in action to a certain extent. Um, we 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 talk about. It's interesting that council culture was too far when I was trying to combat white supremacy and racism. But now people are justifying defending council culture when it comes to picking sides within the Middle Eastern conflict. I find that very interesting because, again, my book says that, you know, people have the free right to choose how they want to respond and react. I call it democracy. It is what it is. But these same people who were very very passive on address on, on council culture talking about mistakes are people making mistakes now or are, are you just no you know these are not mistakes like i the black person who experienced racism i the queer person who experienced homophobia knew that it wasn't just a bunch of mistakes it's it's interesting the double standards that people will implore that they will Pick the say, oh no, council culture here. We don't do that. And then other times, oh no, this is wrong. We have to take a stance. The hypocrisy is hilarious. But let me get to Kenyatta. My issue with Kenyatta in leading this this resolution is that I personally feel like it was done. He's been so pressed lately on trying to get media attention. And he jumps on every bandwagon, whether it's a a new street signing, renaming, or something that is going to get buzzworthy attention. But I think that this backfired. And I heard from sources that he called his colleagues and apologized to them for what happened on Thursday. Because now Kendra, Kendra Brooks, who is in a very, you know, competitive race for at-large seat, you know, as a third party candidate, she is experiencing a lot of online scrutiny for unanimously agreeing. A lot of progressives in Philadelphia are pro-Palestine. A lot of them are, you know, support um, justice for Palestine. And for her, they felt like her voting on this resolution was her betraying her constituents, her supporters, you know, her base. And, you know, again, put in a very uncomfortable position because has she not supported the, red, red registration, the, the legislation, not on the principle of being pro-Palestine or pro-Israel, she would have been framed as anti-Semitic. But she knew that the interpretation of how that legislation was going to be received in the public. And I feel like that's a bad faith vote, right? When you're putting people in a position that you know that they can't win for lose, they don't have an agency to make that choice. And, and Kenyatta put them in that position. He could have stopped it. He could have stopped the resolution from going forward. He could have paused it. He could have tabled it. He didn't. He let it go through because he had interests that was unbeknownst to his colleagues and to the public. And a lot of these legislators have told me that they will be talking to their constituents and explaining that they were kind of put in a position where they had to make that vote. It was a tough vote because, quite frankly, they knew that even if they did it, One, there was going to be no major change happening institutionally. And second, they were going to face a lot of scrutiny and safety concerns. Kenyatta Johnson had to leave with extra security on Thursday after after leading the charge. The question that was asked, and I asked him and other reporters asked him after the session, was it worth it? And he said, absolutely. That was frustrating because I thought to myself, a lot of your colleagues 
were painstakingly frazzled. There were staff members there, Jewish staff members, who were crying hearing some of the things that were said. And there were other members of the community that were constituents that spoke on testimony at the, the elected officials, begging them not to do this resolution. And I just hate the broad stroking that ignores the diversity of support. There are black legislators like Cheryl Parker, who is, you know, posting stand by Israel. She's pro-Israel based on her, her allotment. There are some Jewish people who I've spoken with that have reached out to me that don't agree with how the narrative is created about what pro-Palestinian support looks like. It's not just Muslims. It's not just some black progressives. It's also Jewish members of the community that do not agree with the current governmental aspects with the Israeli government. Um, you know, I just feel like Bibi Netanyahu is corrupt and corrupt leadership with terrorist or operations. I mean, all of it, I, I see faults here. But I said something on social. I made a post that came from a writer. Her name is Layla F. Said, who wrote this one post. And I just, you know, I said, you know, I'm not going to talk about what I'm pro, what I'm this, what I'm that. I'm just going to let it be clear what I condemn. And I'm going to repeat what I wrote. In no particular order. I condemn Hamas. I condemn the Israeli government. I condemn anti-Semitism and anti-Jewish rhetoric. I condemn Islamophobia and anti-Arab rhetoric. I condemn the massacre, assault, and hostage-taking of innocent civilians. I condemn celebrating death. I condemn media dis misinformation and disinformation. I condemn dehumanization. I condemn white supremacy. I condemn systemic oppression. I condemn military occupation. I condemn colonialism and imperialism. I condemn apartheid. I condemn collective punishment. I condemn the use of chemical weapons. I condemn ethnic cleansing. I condemn genocide. That's what I condemn across the board. This is not how I feel about the Middle East alone. This is how I feel about what happens in Africa. This is what I hate that's happening in South America that we turn a blind eye to. I hate the communism that's happening in China. I'm against these things. And if these things are happening in the Middle East, as they happen in Rwanda, as they've happened in other parts of the world, I'm against it. I don't believe that no one should be able to justify their pain by inflicting oppression. I don't believe that people should weaponize innocent people in the name of terror. I don't support none of that shit. And so the problem is, is that people try to manipulate people into a political decision when in reality, at this fucking time, we need peace. At this time, we need a ceasefire with additional solutions because the ceasefire alone means that everything just starts at the bottom again. No, there needs to be a ceasefire and there needs to be a real conversation at the table about what's going on. You cannot escalate a war and expect there to be peace. It is, I feel, hypocritical. You, you, you cannot escalate a war and expect there to be peace for both sides. 
when you know that there is a community of people that are being held without their will in a dangerous position, no homes, no food, and you got another group that is leading misrepresentation, asking for peace for Palestinian people does not mean you're supporting a terrorist institution. And to conflate those things is intellectually dishonest. And quite frankly, the reason why we're in the mess that we're in. But I say all that to say that Kenyatta Johnson bringing this issue to city council in this way for media attention, buzz, and publicity is reckless and it's, it's selfish. And the, and the harm that it's already caused his fellow colleagues politically is just unnecessary. You know what could have happened? You know what often happens in Philadelphia City Council? Because people are going to say, well, what could they have done, Ernest? I have an idea. There could have been a rabbi or both a rabbi and, and a minister. You could have had an Islamic minister and a rabbi. And they could have both held hands and did prayer. And we could have had a moment of silence and we could have reflected and we could have did a prayer like we do every Thursday at council. And we could have said, and that's it. That's, that is what we can do. That is what we look like unifying people. Not having a, what appeared to be a one-sided resolution that aggravated a group of people. Have a public session where folks are saying some very, very mean things to each other. Heckles that are not helpful. Language that is wrong. Some of it ahistorical. You know, one of the things that was triggering to me that I felt was a dog whistle was hearing some of the people at that session say things like, you know, this is not, you know, th these people are not civilized. This is not civilized society, you know, barbarian. It was just really interesting dog whistle language that was being said that, that this was really like, what are you saying about a group of people that, that do not share your skin complexion? Like, what are you saying about a darker hue of people living in an area like that. What are you really saying here? It was a lot of, um, there was some problematic language being used. And to hear it and, and, and experience that, it was, it was just unnecessary. There was no need for that to take place like it did. There was no need. We, did, we, didn't, we didn't need this. And, you know, look, Kenyatta Johnson is going to be, you know, Kenyatta Johnson is going to be the next council president. From what I've heard, he's got the votes. He's going to be it. They're, they're not talking about it right now because they want people to focus on the judicial races and the mayor's race. But Kenyatta Johnson is going to be the likely council president. I just really hope that this man takes the time to think about the consequences of his actions. I just feel like he's just really been running off of ego and it's cool that you want to feel like the big guy. You want to feel that. And I, I get all that. But at some point, you have to make decisions or be a leader and recognize how they impact other people outside your self-interest. I just feel like there's a trust issue with him. Like, I feel like there are people who just really want to, I mean, they, they, he's charming. He's charismatic, right? He's got that swagger. But there's also an aspect to him that is like, you just got to keep your eye open on him. Because it's never as honest or as transparent as it should be.
And yes, he's been cleared of wrongdoing by the law. But the court of public opinion. Hmm. Interesting. I'll leave it there. So I'm going to talk about this a little bit. This Wawa pizza situation. Woo. Listen. The piece is horrible, but you already knew that. But I wrote this really fun piece um, for Eater that went viral this past week. Um, and it's just, it's I love when I get to have fun. So I did a review on the pizza. It's, the piece is called, I Know You Now Have Pizza, Wawa. No, thank you. I talk about how this latest entree from the popular convenience store is reminded that there should be more. So on the surface level, let's just start with the piece itself. It's nasty. It does not taste good. Um, you know, I described and it said that the new piece is edible, but an utter disappointment. A sloppily assembled pie with bland toppings and a dry basic crust. That's the nicest thing I could say about it. I mean, they've been mass marketing this damn thing for several weeks. I mean, it's on billboards, there's radio advertisements, there's social media campaigns that includes the boys from Jersey Shore. Like, it's a lot of mass marketing behind this pizza. And it is not good. They're trying to force this on us so bad. And listen, in 2021, they started to change up the menu a little bit. You know, having burgers and fries and pasta bowls and things. And that was fairly well received. I think some, you know, most people were like, okay, it's not bad, you know. Um, but this pizza thing just hits a different way for me. Because I'm just like, y'all are doing too much. Do less. Do less. Like, no one asks for this. Like, the Wawa, first of all, I feel like the whole Wawa chain has fallen off in recent years. I personally feel like, I, first of all, I don't go as much anymore. You know, I grew up, I became an adult. You know, what they say about civilized society. You know, you, you just, you know, Wawa Hoagie is just beneath me at this point. Why go to high, why, why go to Wawa when you can go to Old Nelson? Oh my God, Old Nelson is so much better. Old Nelson, Old Nelson sandwiches. The the best. Like, if you're going for deli, like, I know I like me a primo hoagie, you know, with the Cooper Sharp, you know, in the seated roll. But that, you go to O Nelson, any O Nelson, and the level of toppings you can get, the types of things you can get on the sandwich. Oh, you get a Cajun smoked turkey, or you could just do a honey ham, or you could do a roast beef, or you could do all types of things. They got sun-dried tomatoes. You could put sun-dried tomatoes. You could choose between regular onions or red onions. Like, it's crazy. It's so many options and toppings. You could do spinach. You could do a sun-dried tomato spread. You could do pesto. Oh, look at me. feel like I'm selling the place. But, like, it's so much better than Wawa Hoagies. So, you know, it's been interesting because people have been talking about how bad it tastes. But for me, I go deeper. It's not just about why it tastes bad. It's about the actual... Like, concept. When Wawa makes pizza and puts it in convenience stores, any of those cute little pizza shops in your neighborhood, like in my, and I'm in West Philly, so you got Pizza Plus, you got, you know, uh, was it Aku Pizza? You got all these other traditional pizza spots in, 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 in that area. And to be able to have to, you know, when you put a Wawa, if you put a Wawa nearby there, which there isn't one yet or not happening, wooden tables, I'm knocking on you. You know, you don't want to have to deal with all of the madness that comes with a place like that. You know, um, 
the you know it, it's it's no piece of places. I, I think I think about like what happened. People are like, well, what happened to the pizza spots? I feel like a lot of these they, these really good niche shops and cafes when these Starbucks come in town, these Dunkins come in town, it really impacts the local areas, you know. And so I saw something in Ardmore where there was a restaurant called Bella Italia Pizza. It is in Ardmore. This is a family-owned business that's been around for 20 years. They put, the, the Wawa company put their big-ass billboard uh, above the location. So when you drive by Ardmore and you drive past Bella Italia Pizza, there is a big, huge billboard that is literally above the location saying Wawa has pizza, those Wawa has pizza signs, starting at 4 to 3 a.m. apparently. You know, I'm like, you're literally disrupting and, and overshadowing a beautiful place that could that 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 is local because you're trying to push out competition, you think. This 20-year-old company from Sicilian immigrants is now being threatened by the appearance of a Wawa sign that's the ahead of it. And if you go to my story, which is in Lincoln bio, but also if you go to Eater Philly's um website, of course, you can you can definitely see the picture that's there um and just about what happened. But I say all this to say that we don't need a Wawa uh, piece of situation at all. It's just trash. It's just trash. No no other way to say it. But speaking of trash, um, the release of American hostages Judith and Natalie Ranan by Hamas has sparked a major dispute. Now, this is according to the Daily Beast. They did a big story about this, about uh, Sean King, an ex-hostage's family clash over his claims. So the activist said... On a, on a post, he said he worked frantically behind the scenes to get to help them to help get them released. But some relatives are claiming they don't even know him. So it's very interesting what has happened. So the, the what has happened? He said he quote worked frantically behind the scenes to help make this possible. Now y'all know Sean King be with the shit. And y'all know Sean King don't like me, and I don't like him. I mean, this man is a liar. This man is a deceitful person, and quite frankly. I think many other people from the community agree with me. A lot of black activists and real demonstrators, people have done real organizing work for years, specifically black women in this community, black queer people know that he has lied and has over embellished and has not been successful with a lot of the movement work that he's been trying to do, fundraisers and things he's done in the past. I mean, there's stories on top of stories of how fucked up this man is. He's trash. So here's what some of the things were said uh, that went down. So relatives of Ranana's, Ranans, um, who were visiting Israel from Illinois um, when Hamas attacked on October 7th, they disavowed King in a statement. Now, TMZ obtained this. They said, first and foremost, we make it clear that he is lying. Our family does not and did not have anything to do with him, neither directly nor indirectly, not to him and not to anything he claims to represent. That's what they sent um, and that was obtained by TMZ. Later, Nally's father, Yuri, told Daily Beast that her brother, Ben, had been in contact with Sean King, but he still distanced the family from Sean King. This is what they said to the Daily Beast. We reached out to many people far and wide to bring Nally and Judith to safety. We are not affiliated with Mr. King. This is what um, the father said. Um Ben, my son, was talking with him without anybody in the family knowing about it until today. 
Our family in Israel posted this statement denying we knew him before we learned about Ben talking to him. We have nothing further to say. Now, King, whose fundraising efforts, as we all know, has made promise, immediately backfired after being called a liar. He got fired back and said, quote, I spoke, this is what he told the Daily Beast. He said, I spoke directly and repeatedly with this family. I have a job, career, and family. I would be throwing everything away to make such a thing up, is what he told the Daily Beast. Thankfully, I kept records of all of them. So he claimed he had these receipts and had a thread. Um, He basically posted these screenshot messages that's between him and Ben that indicate Ben sought his help because he believed he had Palestinian contacts. And King said that he recorded all conversations with Ben, quote, for his own protection, though it's not clear if Ben knew he was being taped. Now, Ben did not speak, um, did not respond to questions about his interactions with King or King's public pronouncements. Apparently, during the time which the story has come, Ben asked King to remove a comment he left on one of King's posts because he was getting death threats. And he also told King he was muting his feed because it was too difficult to see the streams of photos of Judith and Natalie. Now, King, now this is Sean King, an evening tweet said he's been lobbying nonstop for Natalie's release behind the scenes with an eclectic group of over 30 people that would normally never work together or get along, but provided no details. He did not provide details about this. He claimed the family was distancing him it, it, itself from him because of pressure from quote-unquote Israelis. Now, he did not respond to any question about whether any of his efforts played a role in Friday's release of the family, which was orchestrated by the Qatari government in coordination with the International Committee in the Red Cross and the Israeli government. Okay? But the IDF, let me be clear, and other Israeli uh, security forces and Brig General um, Gal Hirsch, he's an uh, Israeli official who has been coordinating hostage work, received Judith and Natalie at the border. This is what an Israeli official told the Beast. And they said the International Committee of the Red Cross helped facilitate the transfer by acting as a, quote, neutral party to bring them to the border. In other words, do we really believe that Sean King was responsible with this. No. I think the, the fucked up part is, is that it's obvious. See, this is... When will y'all learn? Hopefully this is a wake-up call. This is a reminder to stop engaging with this man. It, it's always ambiguity. It's always some confusion. There's always some bullshit. Like... Like, it's ridiculous, and it's it's embarrassing. And it's like, okay, so this man reached out to you. So now, because you all had some conversations, you're acting like you really played an outsized role in this international fucking affair? And is there any money needed to be raised to do this work? And what connection do you have with Palestinian people? What connection do you have with Hamas? And why are you recording people without their consent? All of that shit looks sus to me. But I've known this for a long time, and Twitter is having a field day with him, as they should, because at some point we gotta call bullshit on bullshit. And, and I'm and I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm tired. And everybody's tired. Everybody's clowning him. Roxanne Gay. 
who I admire, an incredible writer, she said this quote, and I'm quoting her tweet. Sean King is a grifter. He has nothing to do with freeing the two women hostages from Hamas. They do not know him. He is not working toward a ceasefire. Please stop believing such absolute nonsense that has no bearing to reality. Said well, said really well. I agree. I agree. At some point, at some point, we got to do better, people. So there's been a tweet, a Twitter, a hashtag called hashtag Sean King success stories. And his tweet is basically people clowning him for what he's trying to take credit for. So someone said, Sean King produced the Renaissance tour. Y'all should be grateful. Someone said, Sean King traveled the country in 2022 and single-handedly fixed all the McFlurry and ice cream machines at McDonald's nationwide. Sean King is working behind the scenes to keep DJ Envy out of prison. He'll be free. Sean King was crucified, rose from the dead three days later, and started an I Died for Your Sins GoFundMe campaign to pay for his time and expenses. Sean King secretly has the 217 votes needed to become Speaker of the House on Monday. <laughs> Sean King coached his mother through his own childbirth. Like, they're dragging him on Twitter. They're dragging him on social media. He's a clown. And all I put was my book, the cover of my book, and said, LOL, hashtag Sean King success stories. Clock the shade. A clown. Now, moving along. Chloe. Chloe, 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 Chloe. Um, Chloe is pregnant. Um, who cares? Is the allegation. We don't know. She's alleged to be pregnant. There's been some mixed reporting based on a glamour issue where she said she was married and looking forward to having a family. Then they retracted the story and like retracted that detail to say she's not married to DDG, which is that horrible boyfriend she has. He's a hot mess. But like we don't know what's to be true and what's not to be true with them. We really don't know what to believe with those two. Honestly, y'all, like until she's ready to announce. Can we, like, leave her alone? Like, obviously, she's trying to figure out how to deal with whatever the rumor is. It's too, too many pictures. I mean, the dresses, the, the, the outfits. It's just too much. Like, I, it's just, oh, I just, I, I couldn't. Words, words cannot for me. Words cannot for me. Um, You all want to know how I felt about this young jock situation? I'm just so disappointed in it with him because I just don't understand why we're even having this conversation and why the fuck is he on this op show? So Vlad TV, I'm so sick of Vlad TV. Vlad TV is disgusting. And, and there was a really great piece in the Grio by Michael, um, by Michael, um, I want to make sure I get his name right because he, he killed it. Um, mm-mm-mm. This is so I'm gonna tell you this part too that was said. So much is going on right now. But um I wanna also talk about I wanna tell you this I had an update about something else that just came up on my desk. Ugh, the tea. But no, um so Michael Harriet um wrote this piece about the op next the the, the op basically saying that 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 Vladimir, this guy Vlad from Vlad TV is basically a man who creates content of black people being division to spur up controversy. And every time he has some of those irrelevant people, like he has little Boosie who asks very fucked up questions about 
Lil Boosie about about Lil Nas X to get Lil Boosie say something controversial go viral. So here here he is interviewing Young Jock and was talking about basically he said on this show that you know he addressing something that Boosie confessed to not long ago. He said he wouldn't perform for the LGBTQ community even a quarter of a million dollars. And basically, Boosie confessed not too long ago, namely, that he turned down $250,000 for a show at an event that was exclusive for the LGBTQ crowd. That end of itself, Boosie always was homophobic. And now Jock is echoing the sentiment. Uh, Jock says that he too would refuse that payment if it meant he had to get on stage in front of gay men specifically. He was saying that, you know, you got to watch how he said, you know, people say you got to watch how he says it. He admits being extremely uncomfortable with men gawking at him with, quote, lustful eyes as he rap lyrics to his song is going down. He stresses just how much 250000 is and how big it, it, it is to get paid that much cash in one setting. And he does this to stress how strongly he feels on this issue. But he doesn't, he, but he also says he doesn't seem to want to associate himself with that quote unquote lifestyle on principle. And, you know, Jock, shut the fuck up. There's so much I could say about young Jock. I could get really, really petty and really go for the juggler and really be, really be like over him. I just, just don't understand why there's always this need for any of these men in the industry to feel like they have to put on this machizo, macho energy, this this very, you know, I don't know, performative, toxic masculinity. No one believes it. Jock, first of all, there's people saying that that Jock has had issues with homophobia because apparently he, um, allegedly, they said, he had an encounter with someone and was quote-unquote tricked or, or catfished. There's also people calling him out that said years ago he was at a Pride event and, and they didn't even get paid less, less, less than 20000 He didn't even make no big bucks. And he performed at a gay club before in the past. Like, all of this is weird. And this is funny because these people play this lifestyle, religious stuff. Dude, you got like 18 kids from four different baby mamas. You had them kids while you were still married to your first wife. Your second wife, you apparently done cheated on her for several years on end. Like, what are you talking about? Shut up. Nobody wants you. Nobody cares. Like, I, I just don't understand the nature. And I just feel like, again, these people, I, I get annoyed even talking about stuff like this because I know that the whole point of why Vlad TV exists is to just create unnecessary division amongst black people about sexism, about sexuality, about, you know, all these things that are irrelevant. Like, why do we care? Why do we care that Boosie turned down 250000 Do I even believe that? I don't believe no one's paying Boosie in 2023 $100,000 before anywhere, especially anything like that. Like, who wants Boosie to be anywhere, you know, at any queer event? Like, just stop lying. Name names or leave it at the playground. I feel like a lot of people are creating these narratives just to try to make themselves tough at the expense of, of really just frustrating and fucking with innocent queer people. Like, who cares? Go away. Period. Just go away. Fuck off. So, Britney Spears' book, The Woman and Me. I've been telling you all for a long time how incredible this book is, how much I love it, how much I'm excited about it, how much I just knew that a lot of the things that I've spoken on in the past would be vindicating. 
So let me let me explain what I mean by vindicating. Brittany, I'm able. I'm, the book is you know you can get the book. The book is going to be on your bookshelves in the next couple of days, I believe. This upcoming week, you should all if you haven't ordered on Amazon pre order, get the book. It's called The Woman in Me. It's incredible. I don't want to tell too much of the book, and there's been details already being released about it. So of course, Justin Timberlake is trash. We knew this, but you know now it's come out that she had an abortion. Um, you know, and she said she felt that because Justin didn't want to be a father. That the, the whole time this narrative of her cheating wasn't necessarily accurate. That Justin was also cheating and that there were problems in the relationship and that Justin really capitalized off of her virginity, her sexuality in a way that was was sexist and was, was misogynistic. And, you know, people tried to figure out why was he apologizing to Britney last year so early. I think we all know why. But there's also conversations in the book about, you know, Christina Aguilera and her feud with Christina. And a lot of people, you know, Christina had uh, made it appear that they were in a good place. But then Britney spoke out and, cla- and, and clapped back. She talks more about it in this book. The relationship with her sister and her family, her parents, and how they continue to backstab her. But the real takeaway for me, and I don't want to go too deep into this, but it makes me think about... Something Taylor Swift has said um, in her documentary, Miss Americana, on Netflix, which you can still watch. She talks about how a celebrity stays the same age in the public's mind when they come out and they never escape it. And it made me think about Britney in the sense that, like, Britney grew up super fast. Like, she was talking about, if you go back and listen to some, I'll go back and listen to a lot of her old songs, which I love. I look at how old she was singing them songs. I'm just like, girl, what was you going through? I mean, they're very sexual. They're very, you know, flirty and fun. But, I mean, she was super young singing about some heavy stuff. Like, she looked like she was living the life of a mid-30s woman, you know? But she was, like, in her teens, like, her 19 and 20 years old, talking about things that's just like, wow. They grew her up so fast. They started her growth. And the interesting thing is it's almost like a regression now in her behavior because of her conservatorship. Where they, they took her up to a certain level and they never matured her. And like it feels as though Britney is wrestling with that agency and that maturity. And so when people talk about her dancing and, and the way that she acts, it's because she's trapped in that time. And she was frozen for at least 13 years under the conservatorship that did not allow her to have the mental growth and development. Like that was some very harmful shit she went through. And while people continue to make jokes and laugh or pass judgment, it's like, Ugh, can we have some compassion, people? But I just, you know, I'm just happy that people are talking about it. Justin Timberlake responded, basically saying that he wants people to move on and he was focused on his family. Fuck you, Justin. That little comeback you thought you was going to have, I don't think it's going to happen. This in this in sync, whatever reunion tour, they should just hang it up. I mean, people are going to still support him because people love to support trash. But it's been very interesting. To say the least. Read the book. Read the book. Read this book, y'all. I know y'all like to talk about Jada and all of that. Jada's book then come. It's gonna do its thing. But but let's talk about seriously, y'all. We 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 this this upcoming Britney book. Oh, read it. Read all of it. So this week's Ask Ernest was a question about breakups. Here it goes, dear Ernest. I hope you're enjoying your anniversary and living your life to the fullest. I've noticed that while you're celebrating your love life and having a great time being a happy, married, black, queer man, 
which is a positive thing. I have noticed celebrities breaking up left and right. So many people I never would have thought from Lupita Nyong'o to even Meryl Streep. I don't know if you've heard about it, but Meryl Streep and her partner was quietly divorcing for six years. What I did not know is that the entire time they were still going out in public and hanging out. Lupita says she was betrayed by her African king, the dude that really wanted to be with her, even talking about manifesting it on social media. Now she's being seen in town with other guys, and I don't know how to feel about it. But why do you think all these celebrities are breaking up? Like, what's really happening in Hollywood? Is these relationships fake, or is there something more serious? Thank you for your question. Um, yeah, I heard about the Meryl Streep thing. I, I don't know if y'all know this, but it was in People. It came out of People. I actually went and looked it up and got more information. But Don, uh, Mel Streep, what's going on? I mean, I feel, I feel, you know, CNN reported on it, too. And basically, her husband, Don Gummer, has been separate. Meryl Streep and her husband, Don Gummer, has been separated for six years. Um, that's what they said to people. The, the statement was from a representative that said, Don Gummer and Meryl Streep have been separated for more than six years. And while they will always care for each other, they have chosen lives apart. Now, they got married in 1978. And last month was their 45th wedding anniversary. Like, what? Um, people said that Streep and Gummer were photographed at numerous events together over the years, but largely kept their personal lives out of the press. Um, yeah, I was I was surprised by this. It was, like, very quiet. Um, you know, it was very quiet. But, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's a lot to, to, to take in. There's been a lot of breakups lately. Um, you know, Lupita's breakup seems to be very devastating. Um, so this is what I think. I think that we're seeing, first of all, breakups in Hollywood are not shocking. But I think we're at this interesting point that I feel like this is a lot of post-pandemic relationships. Um, slightly like we've been out the pandemic for a little bit. And I think that in the pandemic, a lot of people worked it out. People didn't know if they were ever going to go out in the streets again. People were scared. People want to be in love. People want to hold, hold on to their booze. And I feel like now that things are starting to get somewhat quote unquote normal, especially for the rich people involved, um, I think that, you know, to a certain extent, they probably realized, you know, they didn't want to waste their time because they also recognize, hey, you know, do I have to endure this? But I also want to add that the reason why celebrities are quick to throw a relationship away it's because of the fact that they can afford to. Divorce costs a lot of money. Like when you separate and stuff, that stuff costs a lot of money, a lot of resources. There's a lot of stuff involved in splitting. But when you're a celebrity, you know, you get your own house. You can get, you can move out, get a new condo. You could, you know, you could you could get out faster because you have the resources too. There's a lot of people who I feel like stay in relationships longer because of financial obligations. Like they're like, Oh, you know, I'm codependent on this person. If I leave this person, where do I go? Do I have somewhere to live? Can I afford to live? And I think that that was something that was really big in our relationship, my marriage, is that we are both too, if we needed to be financially independent people, we clearly 
you know, um, become the sum of all parts. We make each other better in the words of that horrible guy named Neo. Um, but we, you know, what? he's a movement by himself, but we're a force when we're together. And I think that's the plan. We, we can be movements by ourselves, but we're a force when we're together. And I think we choose that though, right? You, you know, relationships are choices. And I tell people that all the time, it's a choice. You choose to be with the person, okay? You choose to be with them. If you don't want to be with them, you don't want to be with them, but that's a choice. And I think sometimes we don't, we don't, we don't recognize the importance of choice. Um, in relationships that it shouldn't be an obligation. But unfortunately, there's a lot of people, specifically the cisheads, that live in a world where they feel emotionally obligated to a person. They feel like they have to, there's an obligation to do a certain type of thing. And so when you're dealing with that obligation, that emotional obligation, it, it does take a it does take a burden. Um, and sometimes people wait to raise money. I hear it all the time. It's called the, the exit strategy, the exit plan. We have to save up money to get out. And sometimes people just never can afford to get out and they're just stuck there. You know, it's, it's a lot. But I think what I would tell people, just my relationship advice to people, you know, it's been interesting because it's been some breakups um, close to me. Not not with me, of course, clearly, but folks near and dear to me. Um there's been some recent breakups uh, and people are just, just trying to get agency and stuff. And so what I would say um, is if any relationship you're in, you should be in a position where you should never feel trapped. If you're ever in a relationship dynamic where you feel like you're trapped, meaning that, oh my goodness, if I break up with this person today, do I, I don't have somewhere to live. If I break up with this person today, I won't be able to afford to keep up my lifestyle. If you feel like the answer to your question in that situation is no, and that is holding you back from actually being able to free yourself in a relationship, that ain't a relationship you want to be in. You never want to be in a relationship where you feel obligated, right? That in your mindset, oh my gosh, I live in LA and I got an apartment with this 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 dude, and you know we split the rent, but if I if I get out. I'm going to have to get a new place. Blah, 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 blah. Like if you're feeling like the reasons why you're in a relationship is not because you solely are fully interested in investing that person and you feel like there is some other things holding you, that ain't that ain't the relationship you want to be in. I see this with men. I see this with women. I see this with queer folks. I tell all my people, okay? I tell all my hoes, break it up. No, I'm serious. You really want to put yourself in a freeing space. You want to put yourself in an environment you want to be in a situation where you're not codependent like that. You know, um, one of the things I loved about being married and being with Mr. Johnson is that Mr. Johnson is came in the relationship with his own pedigree, his own confidence, his own swag, his own independence and ability to, to sustain himself. Same with myself. We both did. So when we got together... There was no sense of, I feel like I'm taking all the weight on my shoulders or him feeling like, you know, he's obligated to do it all. Like we we came in the situation very much aware of who we were and what we were. And together, what we've been able to achieve and build upon has just been nothing but awesome. But that's because we came in with a clear understanding and vision about our goals, our priorities, and what we want to do and what we want to achieve. When you're in a relationship with somebody that wants to go one way, 
but but it's not considering your way or you're in a position where you are the only person that get to make the decisions and there's no give and no take. There's no communication. There's no understanding of the reason why. That's a recipe for disaster. You know, when I look at my past relationships and situations, I always felt like the reason why the relationship didn't work. It, you know, people talk about cheating and sex and all those things. But honestly, it, it gets down to an actual core. And what I realized in my past relationships with the, why it did not work, <clears throat> if I'm looking at the things thematically, there was an impartiality and expectation and performance. We don't got to get into what that means, but it was a disproportionate amount. The second thing is <clears throat> there was a lack of um, common ground. What I love about dating Mr. Johnson and being married to him is that we don't have to have a lot of conversations about a lot of things that I feel like some couples do. And I'm not getting into specifics, but I just feel like there could be like we don't have a lot of cultural differences that create barriers of communication understanding. Like there's just things that we just naturally understand about each other based on our lived experiences. That even though we're different in our personalities per se, I do say it's, it feels good to be with somebody that shares some unique experiences with you. Like we both went to the same college. We both understand navigating this world as out black queer men. We both understand racism and homophobia and how it impacts social and professional settings. We both understand what it is like to grow up working class and to, and to build we, we just have a lot of things that are just understood that does not create wrinkles in our relationship. You know, I have friends who are in other relationships where there's social, political, socioeconomic differences. There's differences in race and culture. And that creates more of things that I think lead to other issues and problems that we just don't deal with, that we don't have to deal with. And so you just got to have to be in a relationship with somebody that you have a core, <coughs> a core confidence in, like a core like they they respect your hustle, they understand your hustle, they understand your ambition, you understand their ambition. If you, if y'all understand each other's flow and why you all do the things you do and why you do them and respect them and appreciate them or embrace them, that is a problem. Like I'm in love with somebody that gets why I do what I do and why I do it and encourages it and supports it and invests in it and and, and backs it hundred percent. Would he be exactly like me and do it? No. But just because he wouldn't do it the way I would do it doesn't mean he doesn't appreciate and understand it. And the same for him, the work that he do. Like, I could never imagine working in government. But what he does and what in the work that he do in government is just, is just awesome. And so that's what I think. If you can find the core crux of why you want to be with a person and it's not based on financial, monetary economic obligations, that's when you know you truly love a person and you really are in the right relationship. If you really feel like there's other alternative reasons that's keeping you caught in a relationship based on things that have nothing to do with your own personal desires and passions, that's a trap. And when you fall in that trap, that's when the relationship dynamics get really tricky and really weird. Don't hold on to somebody based on seniority. Don't hold on to somebody because you feel like if you wasn't with them, you'll be alone. Don't don't stay with nobody based on 
making compromises in the name of just saying you got a man or a woman or whomever, right? Don't do it just because. Don't do it because of fear. Don't do it because of obligations to other institutions and groups. I don't care if your sorors are all married and you got to hold on to your husband because you don't want to be the divorced one. Who gives a shit, right? Who cares that you might have to go back out and start again? It doesn't matter because the pursuit of your happiness and well-being is more important to being in a chamber wasting all these years of your life with someone that you don't fucking like. It's just, it's, it's just true. It's coming. It's just, you know, from my, from my mouth to your ears. If you're in those situations, baby, free yourself. All right, now to movies. Um, so I saw Killers of the Flower Moon, y'all. It is like two and a half hours long. Three, I think they said three. Is it three and a half hours? It was, it was long. It was long. It was three. It was three and a half hours long. Okay, it is three hours and twenty six minutes, but it 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 does pick up pace. Um, it is a long movie. It is a very long movie. Okay, you 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 need to set out some time. Okay, to watch it, you need to you know do a Friday afternoon situation, a Friday early John. You know, cause you're gonna be up in there for a minute. I mean, my goodness, I think it was a ten a.m. showing, eleven a.m. showing on Friday. It was eleven, and then. We didn't get out that two thirty. Yeah, it was wild. It was it was it was it was long, but it was worth it. It was good. I think it's the best picture front run. I think Oppenheimer and Killers of the Flower Moon to me are the top Oscar front runs for best picture right now. Sorry, Barbie. Um, I loved it. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio is good. He's always good. Robert De Niro in a Scorsese film. Leonardo DiCaprio in a Scorsese film. Who who's gonna miss right? You know, you know, Robert De Niro, this is his 10th film with the incredible, incomparable Martin Scorsese, who is going to go against Christopher Nolan for that Best Director Oscar. I say give the Oscar to Martin Scorsese. He deserves a second Best Director Oscar. His first was for The Departed, to which it was his first film to everyone Best Picture. But, I mean, we got films like Raging Bull and Goodfellas. I mean, come on. Like, look how well they age. But I would say, um, yeah, I, I'm very much feeling him. Um, I don't know. I don't think Leo's getting Best Actor. I think he's going to get nominated for Best Actor. But I think a lot of people are really are into Clillian Murphy for Oppenheimer. I mean, we love a good biopic. Um, but that Lily Gladstone, listen, that, that Lily Gladstone, that Native American actress... Lily Gladstone, she is the one to watch. She's in the lead actress category. At first, people thought it was a bad idea. But the raves about this performance, she is the heart of the film. She is the source of the film. She is the reason why I stayed watching. Um, it's a great film. And there's no denying that um, over here. Um, I want to read what was said about um, there is... A, a woman um, that on Twitter uh, talked about her experience. Uh, I'm sorry, it's a, I think it's a guy. Yes, yeah, a guy. It's a, a Native American from the Osage tribe that talked about this film. Uh, I'm going to read what they said. I've always been so proud to be Osage. I'm so thankful that I have a father that instilled that identity in me from a young age, as well as a non-Indigenous mother who has always reinforced it. But being indigenous comes with a heavy load. 
all too often it feels that we're struggling, we're carrying on our ancestors' task of struggling to become more visible and having our issues heard by non-Indigenous communities. So when I heard years ago that this story I had grown up hearing was being adapted into a feature film and that none other than Martin Scorsese was directing it, I was knocked off my feet. I also had conflicting thoughts. On one hand, this was an opportunity for us to have our history told like never before. On the other, it was being done by an outsider who didn't grow up with it like we do. In 2021, those nerves were somewhat quieted. That year, I decided that I wanted to get more involved with my tribe and be given a name. My recent ancestors chose not to follow traditional naming practices and effect of colonialism, colonization. So that required a ton of work that I'm still carrying on. But I say that I was stilled because our cultural center was so busy with this film that they were hardly able to do any requests for a long time. Knowing that Scorsese and his crew were making use of them and many other entities on the res reservation gave me hope that we would be properly represented and represented we were. He says more, but it just goes on to show that this film, which is really about the 1920s, about the murders of the Osage Native American tribe on Osage County, Oklahoma, and the you know, that that members are murdered after oil is found on their land and how the FBI decides to investigate, you know, with, uh, okay, J. Edgar Hoover, who's also um, in the film played by uh, Brendan Fraser. It's a lot going on in this film. Don't want to tell too much. But it made me think, like, I remember when Leonardo DiCaprio played J. Edgar in a film trying to get that Oscar, but it didn't really do too well. Um, but, you know, He's been in a lot of films. He's, you know, he's the Hollywood golden boy, Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, like, he gets the gig. Like, there's people that literally say, I I got this role because Leonardo DiCaprio didn't want it or he rejected it, I think. I've heard several stories. Like, I think, was it August? Was it the, it was one, the Matthew McConaughey got an Oscar for the film he was in. Um, Dallas Buyers Club. I think Leo was get that role or... I think initially Matthew McConaughey wanted the original role in The Wolf of Wall Street that Leo ended up getting. It's interesting how how the dynamics play, but you know, that's Hollywood. Um, but yes, it's a really great film, Killers of the Flower Moon. You're gonna be hearing a lot about it, um, you know, as the box office unfolds. Um, but it's such a good film. I I I've been I just see a lot of Oscar buzz. Um, coming its way and you know it's gonna be really it's, it's 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 long but you know get you some coffee get your intermission do something take make sure you do your bathroom break but it goes by pretty fast i feel like but you know also music wise so i want to just talk a little bit about this you know drake's album you know did colossal in the billboard charts he is now tied with Michael Jackson with 13 solo number one, not solos, just 13 number one singles as a solo artist. So he's tied with Michael Jackson. They are the two top men solo male artists in Billboard history to have the most number ones. They have 13. Now, Rihanna is at number 14. And then before her is 
Mariah Carey, and then after Mariah Carey is the Beatles. So she, Mariah Carey only needs one brand new number one single to get her tied with the Beatles for the most number ones, period. But um, right now, Drake is at 13. Rihanna is at 14. I believe Mariah's at 19. There's a big, huge gap in between. Um, let me let me make sure I have this this because I when I heard about this, I was like, you know, but this is how it is in the charts. This is how the industry is. It's a lot of charts and positioning and and things of that nature. Um, I'm looking at it now. Let me see. I'm looking. Let me see. Because I was shocked. Oh, here it goes. So the chart is, like I said, number the, the one with the most Billboard Hot 100s is 2020. 20. Um, the Beatles is number one. They have 20 number ones, number one singles. Mariah Carey has 19. Rihanna has 14. Drake has 13. Michael Jackson has 13. Madonna has 12. The Supremes, you know, that group back in the day that was led by the legendary Diana Ross has 12. Whitney Houston has 11. Janet Jackson has 10 and Stevie Wonder has 10. Like, that's crazy that these are, these, you know, five artists have it. Now that the Beatles don't exist as a unit, you know, Mariah, come on, Mariah, give us one more single that can get us to number one, baby. Like, you could tie with the Beatles. I know she, I know it kills her. She's she's the most awarded solo artist. She's the solo artist with the most number ones. Rihanna is number two next to her with 14. But Drake, I mean, Drake is still out there. Drake says he's taking a break from music. But Drake has the potential to, to get another number one and tie with Rihanna. And then he'll outpace Michael Jackson and become the, the highest solo male recording artist on the Billboard. Now, people have brought this up. If you look at the number ones that Drake has gotten for his 13, they're not songs that many of you all might remember. Some of them you know. Like, What's My Name was his first one with Rihanna, which he did many years ago, like over 10 years ago. That was a memorable hit. His other one with Rihanna, um, Work. Again, another one, right? That went number one for nine weeks. You know, he did that. But then there's other songs that's very forgettable, like Tootsie, Tootsie Slide. No one remembers that. Way too sexy. Nobody's gonna go back and listen to that. Um, <clears throat> Jimmy Cooks. I mean, some people like it. Slime you out. Not that memorable. His recent one, first person shooter. We're not gonna hear about that after the next couple of weeks. You know, nice for what? Yeah, that's a big one. God's plan, sure. But there's a lot of songs. Thirteen number ones. A lot of these number ones. I'm gonna go in the order. Um, what's my name? Work, one dance, God's plan, nice for what? In my feelings, Tootsie Slide, what's next? Way too sexy, wait for you, Jimmy Cooks, slime you out, first person shooter. These are 13. I know some of y'all are like, what are some of these songs? Some of these songs we heard of, right? Like Wait for You, you know, that was a moment. I remember Wait for You. That was with Future and Tim's and you know, Drake. Um, in my feelings, you know, that was a memorable one. Nice for what? I mean, first of all, what's interesting was like God's plan was number one for 11 weeks. Nice for one. What was number one for eight weeks? In my feelings was number one for 10 weeks. I mean, that was a, oof, oof. That was 29 weeks at number one in 2018. He, he nonstop, you know, just kept the pace going. Like his singles. He had three songs. The Scorpion album was his last big 
big hoorah in my opinion. But I said all this to say that you 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 know the reason why I don't take the Billboard Hot 100 chart seriously anymore is because a lot of this is driven by streams and not sales. So like anybody can stream a song, but not everybody. But it means something that a person will go out into the store and buy an actual single. And so the role that streaming plays in determining chart placement on the billboard is gotten really frustrating because you would, you know, because people are sitting here looking like these songs would not sell. And so I don't consider Drake a top selling artist when it comes to selling actual music. Like, I don't see him selling any singles or these physical albums. Some of them, they buy them. But he's. But when I think of, of, of top-selling artists, I think of Beyonce. I think of Taylor Swift. I think of Adele. You know, I, I think of Bruno Mars. I think of, uh, you know, artists like that, where anytime they drop a physical album or album, people will buy the vinyls of it. But I don't, see, I don't see Drake in that. I think Drake is definitely a beneficiary of streaming. Even Nicki Minaj, like they love the streaming because they're fans and people will hate listening to that music or stream it, but they are streaming people. They're not the same as recording artist people. And I think that matters. There's a difference in that. So, you know, just my little thoughts. Um, as far as TV, I've been watching Baddies on Zeus. They are doing the episode in Philly. I am watching, I'm observing, I'm really trying to get a feel for like, don't y'all come over here in Philly and don't do us right. Now, there is a girl on the show named Kat. She's from Philly. She was in the baddies, you know, the bad girls club years ago. But now with this baddies East with, with um, you know, Nally, you know, none, um, she's back in a different way. I've also been watching Love and Hip Hop Miami, which is in its final three episodes of this season, and it's getting fiery. I, I mean, there's a lot of drama on this show, and I wasn't even expecting for some of the stuff that went down to go down. So it was very much an eye-opener for me. Um, and, you know, I just, I mean, there's, you know, there's so much other TV that's on. I haven't really... I know I should be watching others. I don't know what's out. Like, I feel like because of this actor strike that's still happening, the writer strike is getting somewhere resolved. Y'all, it, you know, TV ain't been the same. It just hasn't been the same. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm missing it. I'm missing it, y'all. But, you know, as this week proceeds, I'm looking forward to going to Ryder University. I, I really cannot wait to go to Ryder uh, this week. I'll be there on Tuesday morning for the students. Really can't wait for it. It's LGBTQ History Month. Um, and I'm just so excited to be included in this type of way. Apparently on Monday evening, the Lit Brothers have a surprise for me in regards to my birthday. They wanted to do something. They knew my weekends were back to back. But they got this really interesting surprise for me, which I can't wait to tell y'all what it is. I don't know what it is, but I once it happens, I will tell you what it is. But I'm super excited to see what it is going to give because, you know, I like a good surprise. I could tame surprise, but, you know, a surprise nonetheless. And there's so many parties and things happen this week as people get ready for Halloween. I'm not really a Halloween girl, but we'll see what I'll do. I don't know. There's all these Halloween parties. I'm just like, eh. I don't know. I feel like I'm too old for Halloween. I'm just like, uh. Like, I'm happy I live somewhere that doesn't have a lot of kids because it's like the whole trick-or-treating, giving kids candy thing. It's like, I mean, I had that experience, but it's just like, I don't, 
I don't know. I feel like with everything going on, like, don't people just want to stay home? You know, you, you can stay home. You can bob for apples in your own house. <laughs> Which I never understood the activity of bobbing for apples anyway. Because it's like, I don't know. I'm not crazy about apples like this. I was like, why are we bobbing for apples? Like, put something else in there that we can bob for. Bob for pears. Pears are good. I love pears. It's pear season anyway. So we should be bobbing for pears. I don't know. But, um... Yes, this has been a great week. I'm super excited for y'all listening to the pod, this podcast episode. Thank you so much for supporting. Um, shameless plug. If you have not already, please go to Apple Podcasts and give a five-star rating and tell me how much you love the show. Um, ratings do help with um, putting, promoting the podcast on the Apple site and even the Google podcast. Like if there's a lot of people that are giving engagement, they move it up for visibility. But I also do my own marketing. But still, if possible, uh, give a five-star rating if you really love what you heard today. And, um, you know, as always, be well and be best. Earnestly Speaking is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. To stay up to date with the latest on the show, Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mr. Ernest Owens. Use the hashtag Ernestly Speaking to tell me what you thought about this episode and check out my website at ErnestOwens.com. <laughs>